turn to the book of Judges. Turn to the book of Judges. Turn to the book of Judges. And let me say this about our older uh, child's uh, program sessions, uh, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> um, we are working for a teacher uh, for that group. Uh, we have one. What our goal is is to get a couple of uh, a couple of couples that can alternate the weeks, so there's not somebody back there uh, missing Sunday morning service every time. So we have we're working and getting that going. We have one that we may start rotating one uh, Sunday or maybe two Sundays a month with them back there. Uh, but uh, we'll work on that. Just have patience with us as we get that going. Uh, but I appreciate you. Uh, and uh, and being in here, and uh, it's always nice to see some young faces looking back at you instead of some of you guys that are just like. <laughs> All right, so Judges chapter number two. Judges chapter number two. This is a series that we began and uh, titled "Doing What You Think Is Right." Doing what you think is right. This has sort of been the mantra uh, of of cultures, uh, and doing what you think is right. And we're sort of going to try to tear that concept away biblically because this is what led uh, such apostasy happen in the book of Judges. And the Bible says it this way. They did that which was right in their own eyes. And this is the same concept when you say do what you think is right. It's the same idea. You're just doing what you think is right in your own eyes. And uh, we see and as we've seen in generation after generation where that leads humanity. And uh, so we're going to go through this, this gospel here. And uh, this is mess, this mess. We're going to cover the rest of chapter 2 in this one. It gets situated here. Did I turn this on? I have to turn Yeah. Okay. So we're switched over. All right. And uh, this is going to, the title of the message is God's Sovereignty and the Punishment and Deliverance of His People. It's quite lengthy for a title for normal what I'm using. But I try to give the title sort of the aspect of the gist of what the passage is we're dealing with. And I was like, how do I do that? So uh, that's the, the mouthful of God's sovereignty and the punishment and deliverance of his people. Let me ask you a few questions this morning to get your brain going. When you think of the word idol, what do you think of? Not the word like you're sitting idle in your car, but think of the word of an idol. What do you think of? Statue, yeah, yeah. I think most of us probably think when we think idol, uh, uh, Linda has the mature answer: is something that you put before God. Uh, but we think of something like like a little wooden statue, right? That they worship. We even cultures today still worship those types of idols, right? They they carve out their little statue, they set it up, and they worship. That's been something that goes back all the way to. Um, we have it recorded in the book of Genesis in chapter 12. Abraham's father, their family's business was actually making idols for people, making little gods and selling them. All right? So this goes back a long, long time. And it's actually sort of a product of the fall of man. Those are most of the time what we think of when we think of idols. Somebody mentions the word or a preacher or a teacher is talking about having idols in your life, and you probably think, well, I haven't carved any little god <laughs> and set him up in my, my breakfast nook and, and pray to it each day. Well, let me ask you the next question. Is it possible for you, as a believer, to worship idols in your life? Yes. Is it possible for you, as a believer, to worship idols in your life? 
The answer is yes, I'm already hearing those come in. Yes, yes, it is possible. It is possible because we understand that you don't have, if you've been in church for any length of time, you understand that you don't have to have a little wooden carving as your worship thing to actually take an idol in your life, right? And so many times we let other things become idols. And so you've probably heard many sermons, many preachers say, you know, has, has television become an idol? Has leisure time become an idol in your life? Has, has uh, different things become idol? Work become an idol? Has uh, maybe, what about good things? Can good things become idols in your life that you actually devote more time and more worship to in your life? Than you do God? Uh, can the fight for something that is right become an idol? Yeah. Can religious things become an idol? Can your family become an idol? Okay, so here comes my next question. If you had an idol in your heart, would you be able to identify it? That's where I want you to get to thinking of, okay, so many times if it's not right there in front of us in a little wooden carving, and we talk about idols, you think, yep, there's all kinds of people in this room who've got idols. Not me, though. And so I want to ask you a question this morning, digging into you personally. If you had an idol set up in your heart, would you be able to identify it? Would you recognize it right away and say, you know what, I'm just going to come clean yeah, I got an idol working on it. What is the danger of that? I think we're going to see that danger of idols in this chapter. Okay? We all set up things where it takes our affection. So many times we're focused on the outward actions of what we devote our time to and those things. But so many times I think that the real idols are what actually is motivating us. That others don't see. So we're able to keep it hidden. Okay? When I finish the book of Judges, I have plans to do a, a series on, on this, um, uh, this subject of idols and heart. This is sort of a prequel, if you will, uh, to that. But let's look at uh, Judges chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse number 6. And we're go, going to the end of the chapter, verse 23. Let's begin reading verse number 6. It says, And when Joshua had dismissed the people... Uh, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, <coughs> died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the borders. Of his inheritance at Timnath, there is, in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gaash. When all of that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them 
and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. As the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked and obeyed the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. The Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that though they that so that through them I may test Israel. Whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as the fathers kept them or not. Therefore, the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. My uh, family is in town this week. Uh, my parents and they brought uh, my nephew Zach along with him. And uh, Zach saw that I was uh, doing a series on Judges. He said, You going to talk about Gideon? And I said, No. Uh, but eventually I will. He said, You going to talk about Samson? I said, No, but eventually I will. Uh, where we're at right now in this chapter is sort of the, the prelude, it's sort of the setup, okay? Uh, next week when we get to chapter 3, that's where we get to the first judge, which is named as Othniel. And then we're going to start looking at the judges. Uh, when I was in college, I took a, a, a speech class. And it's one of the things they taught us in this class was whenever you're getting up to give an address or speech, you just basically have are focused on three things. You, you start off telling them what you're going to tell them. You tell them, and then you wrap up by telling them what you just told them. Okay? And that's really the gist of giving a speech or an address. And so what we have here in the first two chapters is sort of that idea in the book of Judges. Because what you have happened and explained to you in the book of Judges is the overview of what we're going to dive in detail from chapter 3 on. He's telling them in a, in, a, in a drone shot looking down what actually is going to happen and what you're going to read. I said last week that uh, I was introducing the Hobbit films and the Lord of the Rings films to my daughter. And the, each of those at the very beginning has this long 10-minute prologue where they're just explaining and giving you backstory and history into the world. And that's really what these two chapters are. They're giving you backstory into what's happening to let you know what's going on. So there's three, we split this passage up into three areas. The servant of the Lord, the sin against the Lord, and then the sovereignty of the Lord. Okay? So let's look at first 
at uh, for, uh, the first point, uh, the servant of the Lord, verses 6 through 10. Verse number 6 says, And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. Now, from there we've got to back up and say, wait, 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 wait a second. Because if you're familiar with chapter 1 or you were here last week and heard the message or you listened to it online, I think I didn't get it online until Friday, uh, you're probably thinking, wait a second, I thought we were way past Joshua. Because look at chapter 1. What does chapter 1 says? Chapter 1, verse 1, what does it say? It says, after the what of Joshua? Now look at chapter 2, verse 6. And when Joshua had dismissed them. Wait a second, what are we doing here? Is this a contradiction in the Bible? Does this mean it's not true? No. This is a literary example of how they're telling you one thing and then going back and setting back up and setting this. Now, chapter 1 tells us sort of the idea of the nations. Of what they did. Remember, we explained how this nation conquered these people, and they conquered this people, and then they conquered this people, and then they began to fail, and they didn't drive out these people out of the land, and they didn't drive out these people out of the land. And so it's giving you sort of the details of what happened with this nation, this group, and this tribe, and this group. Chapter 2 is sort of like, all right, go back, rewind, and then begin to explain to us the overall theology, if you will, the reason why they were not really driving them out because it has to do with what they're worshiping. This is where the downfall comes on a personal level after we just saw what they were doing on a military level. Okay? So, to explain how Israel fell prey to powerful oppression, the author, which we believe may have been Samuel, reviews the event since the death of Joshua and these, uh, this verse is actually parallel Joshua chapter 24, verses 28 to 31. So we see dismissal in verse number 6. Uh, he sent them away. Joshua sends them away to occupy the land. And uh, we discussed that in chapter 1. Next we see influence. Look at verse 7. Influence. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. So where do you see... What, what did the people? What were the people doing in this verse? In verse number seven, what do we gather from verse number seven that the people were doing? They were what? Serving God. Why were they serving God though? Because they were following their leader. Yeah, they were following their leader. Remove the leader, you got some problems. This was the idea of influence. Influence. We know this in the Christian world. Why? Because every time you see a, 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 a Christian, I, I say it this way, a Christian celebrity, and I'm not going to use the term fall because I don't believe that they fall. They willingly choose to sin. That was part of their, their wickedness. Okay, They didn't fall. All right? But when you see a Christian celebrity exposed, everybody's concerned. Why? Because people are going to start dropping out. They're going to leave the faith and all this stuff. That should scare us even more. Why? Because their Christianity, their faith is dependent on a person, not God. And the ones that truly are linked up to the Lord, they truly are converted to Christ, they may be hurt, but they don't leave. And because of that man-centered philosophy, it has fueled so much cover-up within the church for 
for decades. Sorry, I'm getting on a little bit of a hot horse. Let's circle back around. All right. Influence. Next, we see graduation. Look at verses 8 and 9. Now, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. So it goes back, tells us about the death of Joshua. I say this is graduation because we see how Joshua has moved on to glory. Verse 9, and they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath Heres in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gaash. And uh, Timnath Heres is probably the site of Timna, 10 miles northwest of Bethel. Now, Watch what happens in verse 10. I, I label this abandonment. Look at verse 10. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them. Now that's just the process of normality, right? One generation passes on, next generation comes after. That's just life. That's how it goes. That's, that's just the way it is. But the thing that it says about the generation that arose after them is very significant. It says... Arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Now, we got to be careful. We got to point out some obvious factors of this verse, of this text. But we also have to avoid some pits in this text. So, what is the obvious thing that we gather from this? The obvious thing that we gather from this is that we have a generation that does not follow God. And they do not follow God because they do not know God, and they do not know what God has done for them. Alright, that's the obvious conclusion that we draw from that verse. A pit we have to avoid is this. And I'm going to explain why this is a pit. Blaming the previous generation as their failure of not passing down what God had done for them. Say, so wait a second, wait a second, shouldn't we be doing that? Yes, we should. We should do that. You go through all of the Old Testament, you find a major emphasis on God instructing people to set up monuments, set up things for them to look back and remember. Their feasts were all about that. That is extremely important. But let's flip the side of that. Does the fact that you pass and the things that God has done and you, you explain the things that God has done guarantee that the next generation will follow God? No. And that's why I say it's a pit. Because if we put all of the blame on the previous generation, then that leads us to conclude if we just fix that little thing, the next generation will be just fine. That's not how it goes. That's not how it goes. Now, did the previous generation in Israel probably mess up in some of those areas? Yes. But every single individual is accountable for their own actions and following God in their own life. They are responsible. Okay? And I do find it completely hard to believe that they didn't know about Yahweh at all. Okay? They may not have been, they, they may have failed at explaining everything that God had done, bringing them out of Egypt and protecting them and keeping them alive all the way through the, the wilderness wandering. They may have failed in that area. But you're talking about, and we're going to see this when they dive off the idols. Man is created with a tendency and a capacity to want to worship. It's in everybody, even the atheists. What is the atheist worship? Themselves. Okay? So we have that tendency and capacity that we're going to gravitate to something to worship to. Okay? I'm spending way too much time there. Let me move on. All right? So then we go to, uh, well, I want to read this quote from Herbert Wolf. 
in the Expository Bible Commentary. He says this, People cannot thrive on the spiritual power of their parents. Each generation must personally experience the reality of God. Now, moving to number 2, verses 11 through 13, the sin against the Lord. Now, there's one overarching theme in these, these three verses that I've got it broken up into verse 11, 12, and 13. But uh, let me, if you just stay with me, we're, I, want, I want you to see sinful actions, sinful relations, and sinful worship. Now, the idea of sinful worship actually is the thread that goes through all of it. But first, sinful actions. Look at verse 11. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Okay, sinful actions. What did they do? They went and served the Baals. I know that's sinful worship. Just stay with me. I'm really bad at outlines, okay? That's all I can say. Herbert Wolf said that Baal is an epithet of the Canaanite storm god Hadad, son of Dagon. There are also Baals associated with particular places, like the Baal of Peor, the Baal Berit, and this may account for the plural form of this word used in verse number 11. So, they, uh, they, they did evil in the sight of God, they served these false gods, they served these other gods. Verse 12, sinful relations. They forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. That's why I call this sinful relations because what caused them to then go into this sinful worship? It became they started getting around the relationships of other people. Okay, again, there's a pit there we can fall in and that is coming to the conclusion that... Oh, if we just make sure that our kids have uh, the right friends, they'll be okay. And that is not a surefire way that that's going to happen. All right, should we have concerns over who our children spend time with or who even ourselves spend time with? Yes, they have influence. But I think there's been such a shallow understanding of this preached throughout the, the, the past few decades of isolate yourself from anything wrong. And you're going to turn out great. There's actually a show on TV about this. Mary and I have gotten hooked on it. Uh, it's called Welcome to Platteville about this family in Georgia. That, that's what they did. They went out and bought themselves like a 38-acre farm. And they, because the husband and wife had like a wild party life, they like cut themselves off completely from just about all society. Well, what happened is, and Mary keeps saying, why did they put themselves on TV? And I was like, I have no idea. What happened was is as the kids began to get a job and get out of the house and get married, they're going crazy wild. Like, but they went crazy. They like they they, they were trying to have anything. Like, it was it was just like, oh man. And so it's like you have this kid like trying to put follow for the first time. He's like making a video about it. You know, it's 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 it's, it's absolutely strange. But but uh, their their whole idea was they thought that if they isolated, they would turn out right. No, what they are missing is the key ingredient of teaching. Teaching. All right, so sinful relations. Now look at verse 13. Now, this is the idea that's carried through all three verses. Sinful worship. We're going to park here just a second. Sinful worship. Look at verse 13. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and Asherahs. Okay? So, carried out through these three verses is this idea. They forsook God, they're worshiping other gods. They forsook God, they're worshiping the gods of the people of the land that they were supposed to drive out. And this did what? It angered God. What about these gods? Uh, MacArthur's study Bible says, Spurious gods of the Canaanite deity, a god of 
uncontrolled lust, and a bloody tyrant, as shown in writings found in Rosh Hashanah in North Syria. His name means strong and powerful. Baal, son and successor of El, was Lord of Heaven, a farm god of rain and storm, his name meaning Lord Possessor. His cult of, at Phoenicia included animal sacrifices, ritual meals, and licentious dances. Chambers sent, uh, catered to uh, sacred prostitution by men and women. Anat, sister wife of Baal, also called Ashtoreth, the patroness of sex and war, was called virgin and holy, but was actually a sacred prostitute. Many other gods besides these also attracted worship. This is what the, the children of Israel were leaving God for. Okay? Now, Daniel Block says this. One of the negative aspects of their change of allegiance is described as what? Abandoning Yahweh. Abandoning God. The, the God of their fathers. The Lord. The counterpart is walking after other gods. The expression walking after other gods derives fundamentally from the context of cultic processions in which, in which the devotees of a divinity would follow the image of a deity carried by priests to and from places of religious celebration. Instead of being servants of Yahweh, like Joshua had been, they became servants of these gods. Now, in the introduction... I'm going to try to bring some, some application through throughout the message. In the introduction, I talk about idols of your heart. Okay? What I want you to get the parallel from this morning is that what angered the Lord with what they were doing with these false gods, these, these idols. If I could get you to see the seriousness of the own idol that you were setting up in your own heart. Whatever it might be. And see, I'm not going to be able to, I can't go and sit there and peg you for what your idol is. I don't know what it is. I had to self-examine myself. Pinpoint what, what it might be with me. I can be transparent with you. I feel like that I came out with more than one. What is it that actually motivates me that tends to pull me away from serving and pleasing God first and foremost in my personal life. And this is what the children of Israel were doing. It's the interesting, you, you, have you ever taken notice too, throughout the Old Testament, the illustration, if you will, that God uses for, for explaining what serving other gods is? He likens it to what? The marriage relationship and, and, and running around with, with a prostitute. And that's consistent. Because I think it gets to the matter of how disgusting it is to God. So let's go to number three. Number three is the sovereignty of the Lord. And this is what we're going to see. Now again, remember what I told you. This is the setup. This is the overview of what we're going to cover in detail in each chapter with each judge. So Jesus you say, because they did this, then God begins to act sovereignly over them. Alright? So we're going to see what we're going to explain here play out as we go through this book. Alright, so first, 
And, and this is, again, this breaks up into different, it's sort of like a, in, in, in ancient literature you have what's called a chiastic structure. How many of you ever heard of that? Uh, chiasm or chiastic structure. And it's sort of like you have something set up here, you have the main point in the middle, and then you have something that comes around and circles behind it. The best way I can understand, get you to understand this in our terms is it's sort of like the idea of you, I, I, I'm not me, I'm not a decorative person, I don't understand these things at all. But like when my wife is setting up photos on her wall at, at home, she may put the family picture in the middle as the main thing that you're supposed to look at with little smaller pictures on each side of it, right? I remember when Miss Nancy, uh, we were having, uh, Madison was little, and we were having Mackenzie, Miss Nancy would come and make little uh uh, like blankets or, or little outfits with the initials on them, right? And so Madison's initials is MJH, right? Okay, so MJH. So it would say MHJ. And I said, you got it wrong. You totally messed up. You're going to have to go back and fix that. And they're like, no, John, that's the way it's supposed to be. The H, she's a Hollyfield, is the centerpiece. So that's the idea of what we see in this passage. So you see punishment, verses 14 and 15, Rescue, verses 16 and 18. Disobedience in 17 and 19. And then you see God come in and start speaking himself in verses 20 through 23. So look at punishment. Verse 14. And I've got to move quicker. I'm sorry. Uh, verse 14. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, as they were greatly distressed. So what did they do? They left their God, they worshipped false gods, the idols took over, and what did God do? He brought punishment. In the form of what? We're talking about nations here. How did He punish them? He brought in pagan nations to judge them. To enslave them. To defeat them. Daniel Block said, Yahweh is a passionate God. He cannot stand idly by while other divine competitors snatch his people from him. Nor can he passively accept his own people's adulterous affairs with other gods. Yahweh's expression of anger against his people is described in the form of two roughly parallel statements. He gave them to the power of the plunderers and to the power of their enemies. Alright, so there you see the punishment. Next, but this is where grace comes in. This is what I think is just awesome. Look at the grace. Did they deserve grace? No. Me, I certainly wouldn't have given it to them. But look at verse 16. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the land of those who plundered. Now look at verse 18. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. Herbert Wolf said, Divine compassion was as great as it had been in rescuing people from Egypt, where they had groaned under severe oppression of Pharaoh. He brought punishment. He brought the enslavement. They cried out for mercy, for grace, which they didn't deserve. He raised up judges and delivered them. Such a gracious God we have. Such a graceful God. Which is why it's one of His attributes. Then disobedience. 
Should this have changed them? Did it? Verse 17. Yet they would not listen to their judges. But, watch this, played the harlot with other gods. What, Israel? What is wrong with you? And bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked and obeyed the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. Look at verse 19. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers. By following other gods to serve them and bow uh, down to them, they did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. Actually, what you're going to see is a progression. All right? So you see this cycle, right? They serve wicked gods. They go into idolatry. God sends a nation sovereignly to punish them. They are enslaved. They cry out to mercy. God sends judges to defeat them, deliver them, and then they go back into the idolatry, and then God sends them. I mean, this is the cycle that happens, but what you also see is that each time they do it, it gets increasingly worse. And each time they're delivered, the deliverer is, is worse. See, we start out with a guy named Othniel, which we're like, Othniel, awesome. Othniel can come to our church. We end with a guy named Samson. And if you know anything about Samson, you say, hey, we church disciplined him ten times over. <laughs> Dude was, oh. It, it, the, 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 the decline kept going and going and going. So then we come to verses 20 and 23, God's assessment. First, God's accusation, verse 20. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice. So, then we come to verse 21, the reaction. I will also no longer drive out them any of before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. What did, what did he say? I told them to obey and go drive them out. They didn't do it. Instead, they adopted their worship of Baal and the other false gods. And so for that reason, I won't drive them out. I'll keep the Canaanites around. I'll keep those foreign nations around because they're going to punish them. And then his motive, verse 22. So that through them I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk to in them, as their fathers kept them or not. Now, through all of this, let me ask you this question. Through all of this, who's in control? Who's in control? Is it control over the wicked nations? Is it control over the good nations? Control over Israel, God's people? And they do his bidding whenever he wants them to. He let the Canaanites raise up, let them defeat, and he let the Canaanites be defeated. He let the Israels be punished, and he gave the Israels the strength to defeat their enemies. God was in control. That's why I call this the sovereignty of the Lord as he moves over. God's allowance in verse 23. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. Alright? So that's where we come to the end of chapter 2. Chapter 2. Daniel Block says Israel committed apostasy. In this context, apostasy means abandoning Yahweh in favor of other gods. 
It means claiming to be the people of Yahweh while acting as if one belongs to Baal. Let me put that in a different language. It means claiming to be a child of God while acting like you're a child of Satan. I'm not talking about those that we like to brandish as the worldly, heathen-looking people. No, I'm talking about those who we would brandish as those looking godly, but on the inside, as Jesus said, they're full of dead men's bones. That's what I'm trying to get at. We get so focused on the outside and cleaning up the outside that we're not dealing with the idol that is taking us away from God within our own hearts. And we have to recognize that that is where we need to be doing the surgery at. That is where we need to be going to the Word and going to God in prayer and asking Him to do the surgery at. Instead of trying to make this look a Christian, excuse me, like Christianize it. So, what is our application? What is our application? Number one, as we look through this text, we pull out a couple of things. Number one, the sin in our lives that we fail to conquer will eventually conquer us. Gordon Risby said that. The sin in our lives that we fail to conquer will eventually conquer us. This is why this is so serious. Number two, the people... Now this is, this is something that I want, to, I want you to ponder and think about. The people wasted their suffering. Israel wasted their suffering. Was them being... Defeated and enslaved by pagan nations in the land throughout the book of Judges that we see, whether it's the Canaanites, whether it's the Philistines, was that suffering? Did they suffer? Yeah. I, 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 I try my hardest to, I, I despise getting political in the pulpit. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Americans or Christians today, let me not just say Americans, I mean across the world, do you think Christians today across the world are going to be suffering? Are suffering? Okay, so listen. They wasted their suffering. They didn't learn the lessons God wanted to learn and profit from his chasing. We don't need to waste our suffering. Do not let our pride of patriotism blind us from learning the lessons in our suffering. Okay? Let me move to the next one. Last thing. If disobedience isn't followed by divine discipline, then the person is not truly a child of God. For God chastens all his children. Let me read that again. If disobedience isn't followed by divine discipline, then the person is not truly a child of God. For God chastens all his children. Throughout this message, I've tried to get you to see the importance of self-examination. Of, of looking inwardly, examining your own heart for idols of your own heart. But if you're here today, can I challenge you to self-examine yourself whether you're in the faith? That's Paul tells us. If disobedience isn't followed by divine discipline, then the person is not truly a child of God. For God chastens all of his children. Are you in Christ? Have you repented of your sins and believed in faith on Christ who died on the cross for your sins? Has that happened? 
Have you done that? Has conversion taken place? And if it hasn't, can I challenge you? Can I urge you? Can I, can I plead with you to do this? To repent. Turn away from the sins that are putting back and, and turn to God in faith to believe that what Christ has done. If you have any questions about that, please talk to me. I'm going to pray. Mary's going to come and we're going to sing our, uh, our hymn of contemplation this morning and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you so much for the lessons that you give us in Scripture. As we open up your word and we see what the Israelites, let us not look at Israel and come away with a trifle of, oh, how could they do that? We wouldn't do it. Instead, let it humble us. Let it drive us to humility of looking introspectively and asking ourselves, are we doing that? Are we committing this blatant sin of continuing to turn away from you to worship the only item that we have set up in our own? We pray that if there is someone here this morning that does not know you that they will repent and turn to you this morning We pray for those that are not here this morning because of health or some other hindrance. We love you. We give you praise and glory in Jesus' name.